Hello, welcome to Let's Talk Robotics. I'm Nikki, your host, and welcome to the podcast wherever you are in the world listening to this today. It is, gives me a great pleasure to introduce you, Garrett Place, who is the Business Development Robotics Perception at IFM. Garrett, welcome, and thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, thank you for having me, Nikki. It's a great uh, honor and pleasure to have you. So IFM Effector, the Australian branch, was uh, a sponsor of uh, Generate 22, the robotics and AI conference that we've just recently held in Melbourne. And it was an absolute pleasure working with Eugene and his team. So uh, hence our discussion with you, we thought we'd get a global representative and who better than someone who's worked for the company for 18 years. It's a huge achievement. Congratulations. Uh, thank you very much. It's uh, the time has gone by fast. I know it's a blink, but uh, you know, in this in this world of people, you know, with quite short, um, shall I call it iterations at companies, it's it's really actually. Um, when I was looking up your career, I thought, wow, eighteen years. You must have some stories to tell. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been a, a crazy ride, especially in in the growth of this environment, the growth in the robotics industry in general. Uh, things have uh, kept me on my feet, that's for sure. Yeah, so talk us a little bit through your journey. Yeah, so I started uh, actually um, 18 years ago in perception, if you will, inside of IFM. I actually had a small career at IFM before then as well. Uh, and But really concentrating on perception back then uh, in different product management roles up until about 2008 when the focus really shifted into robotics and mobile robotics industry. And since then it's been a, almost a laser focus on that industry, which is what the industry deserves. Yeah. And tell me, how do you think it's developing? Like it's so 2008, you're based in uh, Melbourne and Pennsylvania for our audience. Um, if you're picking up a slight twang there, how do you think um, it's developed from, from then to now? The robotics industry in general? Yes. Oh, wow. How, how much time do we have, Nikki? Um, go, go for <laughs> it. I'm very interested in this topic. <laughs> now, I, I, I think maybe in summary, uh, the robotics industry is not new, uh, obviously born out of the 50s and 60s, uh, very heavily focused towards automotive industry and robotic arms. I think up until um, 2008, 9, 10, things started to become more interesting uh, in the industry. Uh, led by a number of different, let's say, startup companies. Uh, and going from there in 2012, I think, is really the inflection point in this entire industry. So in 2012, you, you had uh, the M&A purchase uh, of Kiva by Amazon. And Kiva had a very, very interesting idea in this industry and were serving a community in logistics automation that was growing phenomenally. And as soon as Amazon purchased Kiva, it left a hole. And that hole is now filled by uh, hundreds of startup companies and now existing companies in that industry, uh, all focused towards progressing robotics and mobile robotics in that industry. So I think that's one. Uh, two, in 2012, um, PrimeSense open sourced the uh, Connect camera. So we had it before then, but this gave the ability for any university to start putting low-cost three-dimensional imagers on students' desks. 
And then you start doing curriculums and things like this after that. And then you had a firm engagement uh, in open source software packages for robotics, specifically ROS. And at that point, um, that both ROS came in, PrimeSense was available, students started learning, and the market was really searching for the next generation Kiva robotics that would make uh, their lives easier. So from 2012 on, we see an absolute mass acceleration in this industry, both in arms and mobile robots. I came to the Consumer Electronics Show in 2018. I think, I mean, of course, the census pricing come down um, has, has, I think, also contributed to it. And I was absolutely floored at um, the just the variety of robots. I think, you know, predominantly, obviously, uh, manufactured in China and, and what's available. Now, obviously, I, I was actually planning on coming back in 2019 and then... Um, things I, I just couldn't do it and I'm hoping maybe in you know the next year I can come back and I'm expecting to see maybe even triple the amount of robots there yeah yeah it saw the same thing at CES we might have passed each other at that particular yes. show uh, the uh, CES is mirroring what's happening in the industrial sectors as well so in 2012 uh, at our large manufacturing show and logistics show called Modex, Kiva was one of two mobile robot companies there, two or three. Uh, and now just uh, in March, we went to Modex and it's a robotic show. Yeah. So take a step back into your education system and robotics. Like how, do the Ameri- how does the American system deal with this? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So back... Uh, back in the day, uh, we had lab space, of course, and everyone would, would go into the lab, do work in the lab, because a lot of the equipment that was available at that time uh, was expensive. And so there is investment at many universities, but not as much investment to almost democratize that learning principle. Uh, now, hardware is becoming a lot less expensive. Uh, perception, perception devices, the periphery devices that make robots go are becoming much less expensive, much more approachable. And that's allowing universities to really develop full curriculums around not only robotics in this case, which is somewhat still somewhat of a new, uh, let's say national phenomena in the universities, but also then getting into the subsets of particular uh, use cases inside of robotics, perception, uh, gripping, things like this that make these robotics do what they do in the industry. So I, I think maybe in summary, it was, the acceleration that's happening in the industrial and consumer markets in full robotic systems is being mirrored in universities as far as their acceleration in curriculums, um, yeah, degrees, advanced degrees, and um, yeah, it's it's been an amazing amazing journey so far. And what's the adoption rate? Um, speaking about um, personal and, um, you know, like assistive robotics in, in America, telepresence and the likes. Um, what's the population's attitude to it? Great question. So, uh, and maybe I'll, I'll put that together with uh, consumer or what I consider prosumer type robotics. So it's not a home robot, but it's something you might see in the general public. Uh, we haven't seen a mass adoption yet. It hasn't crossed the chasm for um, teleoperation or telepresence robots yet, or at least that I've seen. 
So we see some niche applications, uh, remote work, remote uh, monitoring, things like this. Uh, but at the end of the day, it hasn't really jumped into that full presence, full market acceptance. Uh, but from the other side, we're also seeing in this what I call prosumer robotics, uh, something in a grocery store that is monitoring stock in the grocery store and giving that information up and out. You're seeing a lot more of those robots now in the general public, from stock monitoring to robotic uh, floor cleaning in airports and libraries and things like this. Uh, the public is seeing a lot more robots today. And the acceptance so far has been quite good. So in terms of the personal use of it, like telepresence, what do you think the reason is of the, the slow acceptance? I'm not sure I'm the best expert for that, mm. but I would say just in my experience that um, killer functionality of that outside of maybe hospitals and remote doctors, mm. they haven't found the killer app, if you will you know, to use the, the phone parlance. And as such, if there's no really compelling reason to use a teleoperated robot, it becomes challenging to, to uh, have sales success. Yeah, you have to substantiate it. I wouldn't say significant, but there is a financial outlay. Yep, very much. So IFM's journey, they're based in Germany, um, is the head office. Uh, you've got, I think, offices probably in about 30 countries in the world, if I don't know, maybe I'm overreaching, but you've got, you've got a presence all over the world. Tell us about its journey. Yeah, and, and you're probably a little short on the 30. Okay. Uh, I think we're in almost every industrialized nation. Uh, and okay. So we started back in the late 60s as an industrial sensor company, uh, really on-off devices used in the manufacturing of most goods today. In our journey, not unlike a lot of journeys inside of organizations, we start to grow that, that portion of the company. And then we look for adjacencies uh, in the industries that we are working in to say, okay, what else can we solve with the knowledge we have? And so we started uh, getting from binary type devices to process measurement devices into uh, now networking controls. This goes up into the 2000s. And then started really looking at some of the more let's say broader topics of real-time maintenance or communication, uh, thinking about data flow up from the plant floor up and out, uh, AI and machine learning, so software type approaches to these systems. And as I said, back in the, the mid 2000s, perception devices, both on the plant floor and then in robotics as well. Talk to our audience about what a perception device is just if they, if they don't know. Yeah, thank you. So uh, if we throw these terms out, right, that everyone no, knows. I, I, no, not everyone knows. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's our world today. So a perception device, I'll, I'll speak specifically to robotics. So we think about perception as being anything that's perceiving the environment like a human might. So two-dimensional cameras to bring uh, that texturization or, or color of the world into the robot. Three-dimensional perception devices or cameras. Uh, that allow the robot to have that depth perception that humans do as well. Uh, and then others, a little more adjacent to that, like radar or ultrasonic, because uh, in robotics and industry, really in general, there's no one technology that actually solves all problems. So this industry is really a, the challenge is an integration or fusion challenge. It's not a technology challenge, if you will. 
And so we see things like ultrasonics to detect glass or clear objects where 3D cameras detect broad scopes and 2D LIDARs can detect long ranges and, and do localization and things like this. So in your role, um, tell us what you do in your role and how it's expanded since you, you took it on. So my role is, is we consider it here in the US business development. It's a global and new organization. It's more of a, a product management role. And my responsibility is really to engage with the community at large, understand the challenges, understand where they're trying to go and what's missing today, bringing that information back with the colleagues into the development teams uh, inside of IFM and see what we can do to address those problems. So consider someone like myself almost voice a customer to the development team. And then on the reverse side of that, of course, the development team is looking for action from product management, business development. So we are their voice to the customer. So is there one of you in every single country? Almost. So right. in some of the smaller countries, uh, they have almost a generalist uh, in my type of role. So maybe five, six, seven, eight different platforms. Uh, for something like the US or France or Italy, so on and so on, China, uh, they have really distributed product management and business development groups. So I am one of seven, I believe, inside of IFM US. And do you all get together and compare what's going on in your respective markets and progress? And tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, I mean, as you know, in the world, the, there's nothing really neat and pretty. Uh, there is a lot of different challenges in every industry, every market segment. And so someone like myself uh, working in perception of robotics is going to engage uh, directly with uh, our product manager for track and trace systems. So RFID, code reading, things like this that allow the robots or allow the automation to understand not only where these objects are, but what these objects are. And so we're gonna integrate together nicely when we're talking about logistics automation. I might engage with another colleague of mine to talk about uh, one-dimensional depth perception and talking about that as far as part tracking inside of an automotive plant. So there is definitely collaboration inside of all of the different product management groups because there's no one, say it's not a one-to-one -one marriage between product segment and market. So your products, um, your, uh, your 3R perception platform, um, and imaging, talk to us a little bit how this has developed over the years. Yeah, we're, we're proud of the O3R primarily because I think we did a very good job of listening to the market and listening to the challenge. So as I said before, we started in, in 3D perception in 2008. Uh, it was a good product, uh, probably not the best timing. In 2015, we launched our second iteration of our 3D camera, much better product at a much better time. And what that product did was allow us to engage with the robotics community and automation community at large and talk about what we are providing or trying to provide and where their challenges are. And I, I lead in to, to answer your question with that because in that timeframe, in that 2015 to 2018 timeframe, what we learned from the industry was that there isn't a single camera problem. There are technologies that can be better marriages that can be better from 2D, 3D, things like this. But at the end of the day, where the community was struggling was really in 
the integration of multi-camera, multimodal systems, whether it be in automation or robotics. And what I mean by that was simply, we need more than one camera and more than one type of camera or type of device to make robots go. And there's no one supplier in the industry that supplies all of those devices to the community. But the challenge on their table is once they get all the devices on the table, they have to figure out how to put them all together. Perception is heavy uh, from a compute standpoint. It takes a lot of energy to compute the data coming from perception devices, and they're not all speaking the same language. And so the O3R is really a, a development to reduce friction for multi-camera, multimodal systems. So it's an open source platform. We allow through Docker, allow the customer to program in any language they would like to program in at that point. We allow third-party devices into the platform. It's not just IFM devices. It's any device that a robot might require. And of course, we have our own cameras that add to that. We're, we're kind of the glue in between all of the different devices uh, that are used in this industry. And we took that approach because purely that was the problem that we saw in the market space today. Make a good camera, but purely how do we reduce friction for the developers? Yeah. And where are your products mainly manufactured, Garrett? So we actually took the approach globally for IFM mm -hmm. to push the manufacturing out into different segments of the world that had expertise in that. So even in, uh, in the U.S., we have a full development and production facility for our temperature devices here in the U.S. For the camera systems and perception devices, they're manufactured in the south of Germany. Okay, so those are the predominant players or countries that look after the, the distribution. China, Romania, um, Poland, Germany, U.S. I think that's it. I might that's be missing one. Yeah. All right. In terms of the robotics adoption, as you see it in America, what do you think there's going to be a massive change in people's? Um, let me preface it by saying in Australia, if you talk about robotics here, the the overriding thought is oh, it's going to take your job or something like that, which is you know simply not true, certainly not with the robots that I work with. And um, in, certainly in some automation, you'd actually prefer it that the robot does the work and that humans aren't actually involved in something that's dirty, dangerous, or um, even boring for that matter. How do you see the landscape in America, maybe so for the next five years? I think we're at an inflection point. So uh, if, if you watch the news, there's nothing new here. We, we uh, in many different industries, um, we are lacking the resources, the, the human resources to keep up with the pace this industry or this country is moving in. As such, companies are looking for automation, which is driving innovation. That said, we're not quite there yet. So there are barriers to entry. So when you think about uh, robotics automation, most of the big installations are at your Fortune 100 or Fortune 500 companies. They're the ones that can make the investment, uh, satisfy the ROI over years and years of, of um, time. They can afford that. But the small to mid-sized manufacturing, which makes up a majority of the manufacturing, at least here in the US, they can't wait two, three, four years for return on investment for this type of automation. So I think that's the, the big barrier today is how do we 
cross the chasm to mass adoption, if you will, with robotics automation, not just by lowering the cost. Uh, if you're familiar, I mean, there's a, a great product out by Intel called the Intel RealSense. It's a 3D camera. It's only $180. You're not going to reduce that much more. So cost is not the pure challenge. And what we're seeing in the market is that a lot of these companies are now attacking what I consider the, the bigger challenge, which is how do you create more efficiencies with your robot? How do you take a yeah. fleet that might need 30 robots to, to manage the task today? How can you do the same job, but with only 20 robots? How can you make each one more efficient so you can reduce the overall fleet size by 10? And when you do that, you over you really reduce the overall commitment from a financial standpoint from all these companies. Does IFM take companies on a journey of change management when they are adopting automation processes? Is this a role that you you find yourself playing, or how do you manage it? We we engage in conversations, but usually on a tertiary level, and I say that because. The IFM product is really a component on any one of these automation systems. So we're almost like, a, you know, we don't make the product, we make the product better type of, I forget what commercial that was, but it's a similar thing here is that our components go into a larger ecosystem that move it forward. And so we, we talk to customers about where we see the future, the products that we're bringing, the solutions we're bringing to the market. And uh, in a software level, what we're doing with that data moving up, uh, in, in the facility and uh, try to help them plus the machine manufacturers uh, provide the best solution going forward. You know, this, this is a topic close to my heart because when I, um, when I have companies approach me for even just telepresence robots, a very basic form of robot that I say to them, have you, have you spoken to your staff about why you're bringing this robot in? What is the function of this robot? What problem are you trying to solve here? Because I think the best adoption um, rates of companies continuously using it is they've got a champion and they've done the change management process. And I, this doesn't need to be like a huge thing, but you do need to sit down and talk to your staff about, listen, this is what we are trying to do here. We're not trying to outsource any of you. We're actually trying to make your world a little bit easier by having this robot here. Yeah, we, we see very similar um, feelings here. I, I think the world, again, like we, we said in the beginning, the world's becoming smaller. Uh, the, the feelings that robots are taking jobs, uh, you know, I, I can't lie, it's, it's all over the news, it's, it's on Twitter, it's on social media everywhere. Um, there's a fear there that they are. At the end of the day, um, I look at Amazon uh, as an example, and I'm gonna get the math wrong, but essentially, they're one of the largest adopters of robotics today, and they've increased their, their headcount every year. Yeah. So the robots are actually lockstep as they increase. The number of employees are increasing as well. And I think we'll see that. And I, and I couldn't agree with you more. When you bring robotics or automation into the facility, a lot of people say, well, I need the robot to do everything. And the robot's not going to do everything. And I think that's also a kind of a misnomer. Robotics and automation are great at solving difficult tasks, single tasks, make sure that you have the, the right motivation to bring that automation in. And when those marry up, that motivation and the right technology, uh, the answer becomes quite easy. 
I agree with you 100%. I was on a panel the other day talking about robots and how they integrate with us in our lives. And I, I think this misconception of people thinking this robot has got these extraordinary capabilities. Now, let me preface by saying robots are extraordinary in, in the technology that they're bringing, but they're not extraordinary that they're going to solve everything. You know, they, they are, as you've just mentioned, very singular. They're singular things that they can do for you. Um, and I, I, I made the point that I think everyone that works in this industry has actually got a responsibility to counter this, um, this nonsense that's put out there that robots are going to take over the world. And look, not at this point in time, uh, not with the robots that we're dealing with. No, and, and I think you're correct in saying, I mean, the, what we're doing today with robotics and automation is, is fantastic. Uh, and it's really taken quite an accelerated journey over the last decade. Uh, that said, the journey has just started. And yeah. it, the tasks that we're solving today are quite great in what they do. And the robotics, you know, I'm thinking about the simple uh, task of moving a box from A to B autonomously. It's a very singular task. I go from A to B super difficult to do at scale, super difficult to manage and make it efficient. Uh, it, it is a hard task and yet it's a singular task. And that's why that task is having success mm. here versus some of the robots that you see that are trying to do three or four or five tasks. And we're just not there yet. Yeah, maybe, maybe it, it is coming. No doubt it is coming, but mm -hmm. you know, like we are humans, we are in control and in charge of all, everything that happens to us. So it's not as though the robots are, have got to, they can just go out there and do it. And we're going, oh my goodness, look what the robots have done. Yeah, it's, I mean, look, we're, we're influenced by movies. We're influenced by the, the general public, <laughs> TV shows, things like this. I think I've seen them all. It's it's uh, it's tough to overcome that perception. And well, look, I, I think the media plays a lot, and it sounds as though the American uh, media is the same as Australia, and that it's it's all gloom and doom. And I'm going robots do extraordinary things. You know, tele presence robots are of people with disabilities, that's a very good example. They, they make huge differences to these people's lives in terms of inclusion and doing stuff they couldn't normally do. Absolutely correct. I mean, you think about challenges. I saw a, a drone uh, putting out a fire yes. where you know that was not possible 10 years ago. That was just technology unthought of. And yet, here is something that could really impact people's lives quickly. Yeah, we, we see, I mean, how many times do you hear the term Terminator? You know, when you see a, a Boston Dynamics robot or something like that, um, just it's perception. Um, yes. Perception sometimes is not reality. Definitely. Talking about the drone industry in Australia, we've got an absolutely booming industry going. Uh, I believe America's on the same trajectory. Agree. Uh, so actually mirroring the, the last question. You know, when drones started to come out, they were very popular, obviously, in the consumer industry, uh, very popular for picture taking, things like that. Then the FCC had to, to figure out how we're going to manage all these flying devices now, uh, which was an interesting inflection point for that industry, uh, still is. But now the industry is really finding those, those niche use cases that are perfectly suited for that. Uh, things like uh, wind turbine inspection uh, or remote site inspection, 
phenomenal for both that and even like the quadruped type robots that you're seeing today where the, the environment is difficult. But now we're seeing even when you come inside the plant, inside the facility, uh, drone companies that are managing stock allocation inside of a, a large logistics center because it's much easier for a drone to get up four stories than it is for a fork truck or a person. So yeah, the, the drone industry, once they started to really focus in on, on primary use cases that really fit their technology uh, are really starting to fly, pun intended. Yes, um, I, I think with President Biden's inauguration, wasn't there a drone, huge drone show, if I'm... I, I think so. I think it was in the inauguration. We see them in sporting events a lot now, too. Um, obviously yes, I and think swarms, that was, like, um, yeah. yeah. Led, led by the Asian market. I think uh, some of the, the Asian manufacturers were really one of the first, I think Intel as well, one of the first to do a drone swarm show, if you will. Yeah, uh, it's phenomenal great. to actually, yeah, they're all great to see. We had one, we've had a few in Australia and it is something else to see. Um, Australia is actually, we've got a bit of a tech crisis looming in terms of um, having enough technical people, especially engineers. What's the situation in America? I, I would love to say that we're saturated with engineers and, and we're pushing them away. Uh, that's just not the case today. I think it's still a very nascent um, industry today in that when we're talking about advanced robotics in this case. And as such, we are still seeing that, that overflow from 2012 into now. I mean, that was only a decade ago, this inflection point, 10 years. It takes a number of years for universities to really ramp up curriculums based around these types of new technologies, new industries and then pushing that into uh, the general consumer market or commercial markets it takes time to ramp up. So I, I'm not sure I would say that we are bereft of um, engineering talent. That said, we're also not beating them away with a stick. There always yeah. is a need for more and I think that will grow. Can you speak to the rest of the countries that you work with in this space? Is it, do they cry out for for engineers working for IFM and they're going, is there anyone in America we can poach and take to us? Uh, maybe a, a great example of this. So in, inside of our company working with, so we, our camera systems are based on point clouds. So 3D point clouds. And we have a lot of knowledge internal to the IFM company on how to manage these 3D point clouds and develop solutions based on, on that data set. When you go outside of the IFM world, there are other companies like IFM who do the same. But then you talk about robotic integrators, and then you start talking about robotic developers or perception development companies. And that's where you really start to see a, a drop off. There, there's not a, a mass amount of companies that you can call tomorrow and say, hey, here's my 3D point cloud. Can you develop solution A with this data set? And that's not just part of the US problem or North American problem. I see that globally, where there are not a, a ton of companies out there, a dearth of companies that can take point cloud data and do solid work with solutions. And I say that in all respect, all the companies who do, it's just, it's not a, a mass market opportunity yet. Will yeah. it be? Yes. And I think that's just anecdotally kind of the, the the feeling inside of robotics and automation today globally 
is that there are a lot of good people, they're doing good work, but to manage the acceleration and the pace that we see in this industry, we're gonna need a big influx of talent globally. How did COVID affect IFM? I, I can't say we're any different than most companies. So really um, a strange time to, mm. to be honest. You know, everyone, all of a sudden we were at the Modex trade show, again, big logistics show here in the US. We were there and I didn't go back to the office for four months. I left the office going to the show and didn't go back for four months. Uh, so we all had to learn on the fly how to do exactly what we're doing today. But at the end of the day, IFM is a very flexible company. We learned how to manage the situation uh, the best we can, do the best for the employees, make sure they're safe. And we were extraordinarily, still are, extraordinarily conservative in our approach to the COVID virus. Uh, but it, we also kept business running as, as much as we possibly can as fast, and, and we're reaping the rewards now. So manufacturing came back extremely fast. IFM came back at equal pace. In Australia, and I'll just preface this by saying we, we're early May now because this may be some time before it's released. We're pretty, we've, we're pretty relaxed in our, in our restrictions now. I think mostly we can go without masks unless we're on uh, uh, public transport, um, shops, it's optional. What's happening in America? Same, and in, in we're a big country. So uh, I think with any large country like uh, a U.S., you have different opinions uh, in different geographies. Uh, this is natural in a large country. So uh, that friction between that really forces us to look at the science, look at what's happening and make good decisions. Uh, that said, today, uh, the U.S. predominantly is mask free. Uh, we're still struggling to get upwards of that 80 percent vaccination rate, things like that, that I think everyone wants to try to get to. Uh, but life is, I wouldn't say truly back to normal, but it's getting there. Garrett, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Do you have any closing thoughts that you'd like to leave our uh, listeners with? I, I truly appreciate the time we spent here today. Nikki, thank you so much for having us uh, or having me on board. Uh, and the only thought I can say is I think we're in a, an amazing time in robotics. I think that the industry is truly just getting started. And that's crazy to say from a, a 60 to 70 year old industry or in, you know, that robotics is, but I truly see the writing is on the wall that we're ready for, for the next step. And I think it's gonna be a really fun next decade. It is something to look forward to. Where can our audience uh, contact you? Yeah, so uh, we are globally, it's, it's part of the IFM culture to be um, available globally. So obviously the website is the best resort, uh, best source. So either www.ifm.com uh, or if you're in your local geographies, it's either www.ifmeffector.com or something in that nature. But ifm.com will give you all of the different countries and locations and contact information is right on the main page. And fabulous. And personally, should they just connect with you on LinkedIn and maybe send you a message there? Yeah, very much so. Available on LinkedIn, available on Twitter, uh, as, as most of us are. And feel free to reach out at any time. 
I was about to open the Twitter door with Elon Musk, but we'll leave it to another discussion. <laughs> That's a much longer discussion. <laughs> That's a much longer, <laughs> completely off track. Gareth, thank you so much for your time. It's really been fun speaking with you. Uh, thank you, Nikki. Appreciate it. And to our listeners, thank you very much for joining us for another episode of Let's Talk Robotics. I look forward to your company again soon and have a wonderful day wherever you are in the world. Mm-hmm.